Church, in the name of Jesus, praise God, hallelujah, nice to be with you. I'm not sure how well we know each other, we, we come from various uh, sources in my life, the Zambian bit of my life, and the Kenyan bit of my life, and the South Africa bit of my life, so we're all coming from different places. Why don't you just uh, make sure that you know the people sitting next to you, and the people around you, just say hi, be quiet tonight, just say hello to the guys who are sitting next to you, and make sure you know them and uh, their names, and where they come from. Okay, well after the meeting you can uh, carry on with your new friend you've just made. <laughs> so it's good to be with you. I've been uh, traveling a bit for the last uh, eight days or so. I've just been in Qatar and uh, Dubai for a few days, and then uh, went to see my daughter and their family in Switzerland, so I got in this morning. I've uh, really made a discovery over the last couple of years about the Middle East. I've got a very interest in the Middle East. I've come to the conclusion it's one of the best places in the world to reach people. Those are countries which we tend to think of as being very closed countries and uh, under heavy legalism. They're actually wide open, mainly because they don't really care very much what you say to foreigners. And yet those countries are 75% foreigners, the, the uh, Places like Qatar, 75, 80% are not, are not Qataris. They're coming from uh, Nepal or India or Philippines. I preach my interpretation into Hindi and into Nepalese. They, those people come from everywhere. And they, they all have to go back home. If you uh, want to reach Nepal, the best place to do it in the world, I think, is Qatar. It's, it's amazing how, uh, uh, you, at the moment, the world is such that you, you reach everybody in the wrong place. Uh, with, when they're not where they're meant to be, that's where they really are very open to the things of the Lord. I remember in Zambia, we used to often see these uh, hitchhikers traveling around the world uh, on, on the drug trail, ending up in Kathmandu and somewhere. They were very often saved in, in Lusaka. There'd be people uh, searching and just looking for answers. Remember how some of you will remember the Bland Farm and how many people, weird guys used to get saved in those places because they were in the wrong place and unsettled and sort of looking for life. And uh, I also think that's true of, in- of England. There are many people who really don't belong in England very much. Their background is not England, and they're, as it were, trying to find answers in a new country. Amazing how you can reach people when they're sort of in the wrong place at the moment. And that's certainly true of the, the Middle East. So I'm trying each year I go there to add a little bit more. I really want to go there again next year. Next year I want to add Abu Dhabi. I keep on trying to add one more country as I go around that uh, area. So that's where I've just come from. Mind you, I'm suffering from an acute attack of air conditioning. They, they, it's such a hot place, they blast this cold air on you everywhere. And I've lost my voice almost, but uh, I will survive tonight. Well, as you've heard, I want us to, to think a little bit over these days about the, the Bible's subject of adoption or sonship. Um, I could read a number of verses to you. Let me read a, a selection of scriptures to you. First of all, from John chapter 1. John chapter 1 where Jesus is being spoken of by, John, by John's gospel. And uh, John says most people didn't receive Jesus. He came into this world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him, the Jews. But to all who did receive him, John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become Children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 
where Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, from the book of Leviticus, I think it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says in verse 17, the, the Old Testament promise was 17 and 18, I will be a father to you, 2 Corinthians 6, 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Ephesians chapter 1, the one verse that I think many of us would know, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he poured out upon us or freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. And 1 John chapter 3 where John has a similar kind of uh, theme. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself, even as he, he is pure. So that's a little selection of different scriptures that talk about our being sons and daughters to God and God being a father to us. And so I want us to, as it were, dwell upon that a little bit for the, in, in these times that we have together. So tonight let me just uh, introduce it to you very hurriedly and vaguely. We won't be all that long. It's, uh, it's something that uh, happens to you when you become a Christian at the point where you get saved Many things happen to you. I guess the two that we think of the most is our justification and new birth. We think a lot that we put our faith in Jesus and he reckons us to be righteous. We are justified. We're given the righteousness of Christ. We're covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not our righteousness. We don't stand before God because of our righteousness, even when we've been saved for many, many years, still not saved, standing before God in our righteousness. Our righteousness is never good enough. You can never say, well, Lord, you know, how am I doing now? Can, can I stand before you? You never get to the point where you stand in your own righteousness. The day before you die, the day before you go to heaven, you'll still be standing only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't stand, never at any point in life can you stand in your own righteousness. And then often when we're thinking of what happens to us when we come to salvation, we think of being born again. We think of the new birth. Jesus said you must be born again. And uh, here in this verse I read to you just now, those who received him, he gave them the authority to become the children of God who were born. He goes on to say, we are born again. We're born not of the flesh, not of a human ability, not of the will of man, not because of something somebody does to us, but of God. God gives us this new birth. We are born again. I don't know whether you've ever noticed that different people try to tend to emphasize different sides of that. You get some people who only ever talk about our being righteous in Jesus Christ. They don't talk about the new birth. I think the great Martin Luther is a bit that way. His great doctrine, his great teaching was always justification by faith. That was the teaching for which the Reformation in the 16th century was so famous. And, uh, but Lutheranism 
went astray quite quickly. Did you ever know that? Within about 20 years, Lutheranism had got a bit cold. And in the history of Germany, a generation or so after the Reformation, there was what we call German pietism. A new kind of movement began. And it was trying to, as it were, counter this, this uh, merely being righteousness in Jesus, in Jesus with no kind of life, with no, uh, not much emphasis on prayer, not much emphasis on godliness. If you only emphasize being righteous in Christ, you tend to neglect being born again and life being put within you. On the other hand, there are those who only talk about life being put within you and they never seem to, to realize God gives us life because he accepts us. God can't give you anything until he accepts you. First thing that ever comes up when you're standing before God, first thing that ever comes up is not what the Lord will give you, but can he accept you? I mean, why, why should he accept you? You're, you're just a sinner. You've sinned against him. You've rebelled against his will, his, his purpose for your life. You've done things you shouldn't do. Why, why should he accept you? Why should he do anything for you? Before, there's any kind of question as to God hearing you, answering your prayers, giving you eternal life. The first thing that comes up is, is he, does he have any reason to accept you? Will he deal with you at all? And so there are these two sides to the Christian life, whether God uh, will accept you, whether he will cover you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and t- treat you as one of his people. And will he give you life? There are those two sides to the Christian life. And some people stress one more than the other. I, I think of two books, one of which you might know, the other you probably won't. You might, you might know Billy Graham's book, Peace with God. Very great book, Peace with God. Did you ever notice there's a chapter in it about being born again? There's, no, there's nothing in it about being justified. It only talks about being born again. I think of another famous book, which you won't, might not know, The Way of Salvation, by a famous professor called Charles Hodge. He has a chapter on justification, but no chapter on being born again. Some people want us, as it were, to be covered with righteousness, the righteous Jesus. They're concerned about what, what God does for us in giving us this righteousness that we stand with before God. There are others who uh, are not so much concerned about what God does for us, they're more concerned about what God does in us. He gives us life. He gives us new birth. We are born again. We become new people. And you need both. If you preach justification without preaching life, you are in danger of having a kind of cold church. You're in danger of having a congregation where people are saved just by agreeing with doctrine. They, they agree that they're righteous in Jesus. They're agreeing with the proposition. They're agreeing with a little bit of teaching. That's all it is, just agreeing with the sentence. You can be like that but not be alive. You can be sound in teaching. You can know that you're, as it were, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and yet that's it. You shrug your shoulder, well, I'm, you know, I'm accepted now, and that's all there is to it. But you're not alive. You need to be alive. It's no good. You're not saved by just believing a piece of doctrine or believing a proposition. Unless you were born again, you'll never see, you never experience the kingdom of God. Just, just, being, just, just believing that you're covered, so it's all right, nothing wrong with that. But unless you are born again, unless there's life within you, you'll never experience the powers and the blessings of the kingdom of God. There must be life as well as a, a knowledge that you're covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if you're only concerned about the life of Jesus Christ, but you're not realizing that you're covered with his righteousness, you will be 
very unstable. You'll be up and down. One minute you'll feel alive, next minute you won't be so alive. One minute you'll be, as it were, enjoying the Christian life, next minute you won't even be feeling very Christian at all. No, no, you need both. You need a covering and you need life. You need a standing and you need an experience. You need to know that you're accepted and you need to feel the presence of God. Those two sides are always there in the Christian life and you always have both. And uh, I don't know whether any one is more important than the other. If I had to choose, I don't know that we do have to choose, but if I had to choose, I think I would go for life. I'd rather have someone weak on justification than someone weak on the life of God in the soul. Incidentally, some of the great preachers of, of the uh, history of the church have not been very clear about justification. If you read some, if you uh, study the history of someone like George Whitfield, I suppose the greatest preacher there ever was in the English language, you will find in the early days of Whitfield's preaching that he really didn't have any doctrine of justification. He was only dealing with life. He, he, his, his only message was, you must be born again. Someone came to him once and said, Mr. Whitfield, why, why are you always preaching? You must be born again. And he replied, because you must be born again. <laughs> his only message was, was life. And then later on, later on, he studied his story. Later on, he discovered the cross and he discovered... Uh, our covering righteousness. He discovered assurance. He discovered the certainty that we're not going to lose our salvation. There's a, a righteousness that covers us. It took him a while before he discovered it. Same is true, you, may, you might be surprised to know this, the same is true of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you, the famous preacher that I quote so much, he's one of my uh, mentors, as you know, but uh, if you read the early chapters of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' book on evangelistic sermons, which he which are his sermons of about 1928, his very, very early sermons, you'll find he scarcely mentions the cross. He never talks about being justified. He's only saying, is the Spirit dealing with you? Has God dealt with you? Is, is God, uh, are, you are you meeting the living God? He's only preaching the, the, the work of God, as it were, working in you, giving you eternal life. There's no doctrine of justification or atonement there. And then later on, even Dr. Lloyd-Jones had to uh, come into, come into a, a clarity about the basis and the foundation of the Christian life. But I say those two things in order to say a third thing. Because there are not two great things that happen to us when we first get saved. There are three. First of all, we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are born again. We're given new life. We come alive. But those two things come together to make us sons and daughters of God. And that's another thing which also can be a bit neglected. When, when you're saved, well, there's not only two things happen to you, there's three, and even more than that. But uh, you're born again. You're covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But also, you become a child of God. By, by nature, you are born again. And by status, you're righteous in the eyes of God. And God begins to bless you. He becomes your father. And all, the, all these scriptures that I have been reading to you, they all become true. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He becomes your father. You become sons and daughters of the living God, says 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and, and verse 17. See what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. When you, when you, once you're born again, once you're justified, once you're alive, but well, you don't even stop there. The next thing is you become a child of God. And God, as it were, takes you on as his child. You're adopted. You come into the family of God. 
and you become sons and daughters of the living God. And I want us to uh, pursue that theme a little bit over these uh, times we have together and see what it means according to the scriptures. But here's the promise. God promises, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God is promising, God is pledging himself to be our father. He is assuring us that we are going to be his children. And then the next verse says, since we have these promises, these tremendous promises, that God will be a father to us, and we will be his sons and his daughters. Well, that should have an impact upon our lives. Let, it, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the first thing then that I, I'm saying tonight is that this is a crucial part of what happens to you when you become a Christian, when you are saved, when you first come to faith, when you first come to put your trust in Jesus. Many, many things happen. I think there are three big things, lots of, lots of little ones, but uh, those are the three big ones. You are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are born again. Life is put within you, and you, you must know that life. No good just saying, I know Jesus died for me upon the cross. That's all right. But you must know that God has given you life, that you are not the person you used to be, that you're a new creation. The old man, the old person has gone. A new creation, a new person has come into being. You know what uh, was it? John Newton used to say. He used to say, "I'm not what I would like to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I will be. But I'm not what I was. You're not what you were. The old person is gone, and you're alive, and there's life in you. You're born again. You're a new person in the Lord Jesus. And then." All of that comes together and you become a child of God. And God takes you on from now on. He's going to be your father. So I want us to, as it were, work those things out a little bit over these times we have together. So I'm saying to you, this, some, this is something that has to happen to you. I'm taking it for granted that you, every person here knows Jesus. I don't know every single one of you, almost, but not quite. But I'm taking for granted that you... You know that this has happened to you. You must be born again. You must be know that you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your covering. You're not standing in your own righteousness. You're not standing in how good you are. You're standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting that you know that you are his child. And he is your father. And he's going to bless you and take you on as a member of his family. It's something that must happen to you. And then I'm taking it that you know that uh, not everybody is a child of God. I've said it already, but what I've said so far and what the scriptures that I've quoted are, are implying is that not everybody is a child of God. If you have to become a child of God, to those who received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God. Well, that means they weren't the children of God before. That's the teaching of the Bible. It is not the teaching of the Bible that everybody is a child of God. People often talk that way. I don't know that we hear it so much as we used to, but uh, back uh, half a century ago and, and earlier still, people would talk a lot about the brotherhood of man. And uh, everybody, every human being is, is a brother, and God's our father. He's the father of the human race. It's not, it's not scriptural. It's not biblical. The Bible does not treat every single person in the human race as a child of God. We are all created by God, but if you want to use the word father, 
In that sense, I suppose you can, but uh, I suppose you could say God's the father of us all by creation, if you want to use that language. But actually, even that is not, is not found in the scriptures. The Bible never, ever calls God the father of the human race. There's nowhere in the Bible that, where that's ever done. Oh no, the Bible says we have to become a child of God. Unless you are born again, you'll not see the kingdom. Those who received him to them, he gave them the right, the authority to become the children of God. In fact, Jesus said on one occasion, he didn't say it very often, but he said it at least once, on one occasion when Jewish people came to him and they were boasting in their father. They said, we're the, we're the children of Abraham. We go back to Abraham. Jesus said, oh, really? You're trying to kill me. That's not what Abraham did. If you, if you, if you take after your daddy, why are you trying to kill me? Uh, then he said, you are of your father the devil. You are of your father the devil. If, if Jesus ever said anything about the world in general, he said, you are of your father the devil. The devil is the father of the human race. Jesus didn't say that a lot. And you don't have to. You don't have to go around telling people that they're the children of the devil. Um, it's, not the best, it's not the best method of, method of evangelism. But, uh, but it's true, and Jesus said it when necessary. Some, some, some people are so proud of their status in the Christian life, and they're, and they're so they're superior. Well, Jesus, didn't always, didn't, Jesus didn't put people down. He was kind and tender and merciful. But if someone got too proud, Jesus could put them down. You're of your father the devil. He could be very, he could be very blunt when necessary. And when the occasion called for it, he would say, actually, the human race is under the paternity, the fatherhood of Satan. They're taking after their father, the greater one who's looking after them. They're, they're, they're Satan's children. Jesus doesn't say there's a loss, and we don't have to either. But, but it's true, and Jesus could say it when necessary. So the teaching is that we're not born God's children. We're born alienated from God. We're born not knowing him. And if there's any, any father who's, who's, who's uh, as it were, ruling us, in whose family we belong to, it's more likely Satan than God. And that's why every single person cannot be saved and can't come to know God unless he becomes a child of God. To those who receive him, to them he gave the authority to become a child, children of God. And they're born not of the will of the flesh, nor of blood, but of the will of man. And then I want you to notice, I'm still just introducing these things to you. We'll get into details a bit later. But I want you to notice that there are two kinds of sonship. And, and David, in his little story, was uh, David always begins sessions with stories. He, in his little story... He was uh, telling us about a, a child who's adopted and a child who's uh, a child by nature, by ordinary birth. I, I heard a nice little story. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether I should tell it to you because it's so long. But uh, I, he I heard this story yesterday, yesterday in Switzerland. I heard the story of a, a young boy who, when he was 12 years old, had a kind of vision or dream that one day he would have a wife and a baby. I don't know whether 12-year-olds normally have visions about their future wife, but this, this is the boy said he did. He had a vision of a, a wife and a baby, and the baby was somewhat sort of olive-skinned, looked as though she was a Mexican or Italian or something. And the baby, in, in the little, little dream and vision he had, the baby's name was Chloe. 
And then years later, so ten, ten years later, he began to go out with, his, with some, some lady and she became his girlfriend and they were on their first date. They were chatting away about the future and she said, one, one day I'd like to have a, some children, a family. And she said to him, it, it was their first date, she said to him, when I have a daughter, I want her name to be Chloe. And he was sort of stunned because of the, the uh, vision that... Uh, He'd had when he was a 12-year-old boy, and here's, here's this girl on his first date saying that she wants a baby, and the baby to be named Chloe. He didn't say anything, but uh, he was, he was uh, impressed. But anyway, the couple got to know each other better, and finally they got married. But then they had difficulty, and they could not have children. And uh, no baby came for many years, so they started seeking adoption. And uh, it's quite difficult for them, and uh, they were an American couple, and in America, it's quite difficult to adopt because after, after five years, the, uh, tri- the child's true parent can claim the child back. So you don't have much security of keeping your adopted baby for five years. And so it was very difficult. But then they came across a certain organization and, uh, which dealt with very destitute, needy people who had babies but also went into prison and had very great reason to want the baby to be adopted. And so they, they, they explored this organization, discovered some girl who was just about to have a baby that she wanted adopted. She adopted, went to meet her. And she said, you know, there's only one thing about this baby that I really feel about. I'm, I'm ready to give the baby to you, but it's just one thing. I want her name to be Chloe. <laughs> and uh, the adoption went forward. And that, and that uh, couple have a little girl, so somewhat olive-skinned, like the vision of... The 12-year-old boy, he's, he's, the girl is Mexican, and her name is Chloe. Don't you think it's a nice story? Not sure whether it really connects with my thing very much, but it's a nice story. But uh, the point I'm making is you can be the child of your parent by adoption, or you can be the child of your parent by, by nature, by ordinary birth. And so you may want to ask the question, well then, in, in the kind of picture language in which the Bible says that we are God's children, are, are we his children by, by birth? Are, are we his children by some kind of generation? Is it, is it that uh, we are born and conceived of God in that kind of way? Or is it, is it that we are God's children by adoption? Which, which way does the picture language, it's only picture language, either way it's only a picture, but which way does the picture language of the Bible go? And the answer is that both ideas are there in the Scriptures. So that to those who believe in him, he gave them the authority to, to be born of him. Not, not of the will of man, not of flesh, not of any kind of ordinary birth, but of God. We are, we are generated, we are partakers of the divine nature, says 2 Peter chapter 1. We, we begin to get some of the, the, the seed of God. That's the language that uh, 1 John uses. That the bit of the life of God comes within us and we are partakers of the divine image. We take after our father. A bit of his nature is within us as, as any child might be a bit looking a bit like his parents. We are born of God, sharing his nature, and we even carry his image. We begin to look like him somewhat. And yet the Bible also says we are predestined to, be, to adoption, to be taken by uh, an act of God, raising us to a position of high privilege. We are predestined to be adopted. The Bible uses both of those, those different ways of speaking of our being God's children. And... Uh, Initially, this is where 
the teaching about adoption and the teaching about new birth, it overlaps. Initially, we are God's children by, by new birth. God puts his nature in us. We, have, we become partakers of the divine nature. A little bit of God's character comes within us. But then not only do we, do we share uh, this, this new birth, being born of God, but at the same time, God adopts us and, as it were, makes us equal, almost equal with Jesus. He puts us to be brothers of Jesus. The Bible actually says that Jesus becomes our brother. It actually says that in Hebrews chapter 2. And we, we become co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not only, not only are we born by some kind of generation or regeneration, we're also adopted as well to be, to be given the same status as Jesus. One of the most amazing things the Bible ever says, we, we don't think about it very much, we don't talk about it very much, but the Bible actually says that we are loved as much as Jesus is loved. We are loved in the beloved. We are as much loved by God as Jesus is. That's, that's so amazing that we never even talk about it. I, I think we're incapable of talking about it. It's, it's, so, it's so beyond us. And that's why the Bible likes to use that word, Abba, Father, when we pray. We don't have the spirit, or when we're in God's presence, we don't have the spirit of bondage or slavery or condemnation to go back into fear. But we have the spirit of adoption. We have the spirit that makes us feel that we've been taken into God's family. We have the spirit of adoption in whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, it's an Aramaic word. What's this Aramaic word doing in the middle of the Greek New Testament? Well, it's the word that they heard Jesus used, use when he prayed. Jesus often would pray, and he would pray aloud. And sometimes he would just be over there in the corner somewhere on some mountainside praying, and they could hear him. In fact, there's one verse in the Bible that says, as he was alone, the disciples were with him, which is a bit of a, a strange verse. But there's a verse that says that. As he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. As he was alone, the disciples were with him. First one, I think, is we have access to the Father. We are allowed to go into our Father's presence where nobody else can easily go before God. We can. When others are praying and they're trying to get through to God and they can't really get through. Ever listen, you ever listen to someone who's not saved trying to pray? And they say, well, God, <laughs> I hope you're hearing me. You know, any, any God that there might be, there's no sense of uh, access. There's no sense of they're getting through. They're just, as it were, throwing words into the sky somewhere. There's no sense of uh, their being in the presence of their Father. That's often how people get saved. Probably, probably might well be one or two people here who got saved that way. Maybe you never knew the Lord. And then one day something, as it were, woke you up and made you realize that God was real. And it may have been, it may have been that you heard a real Christian praying. You, you, you just uh, went to some meeting and you heard someone praying and you thought, wow, this, this person seems to know the Lord. And what the first, maybe, I don't know whether anybody here like that tonight, maybe the first time in your life when you began to know that God is real is when you heard someone pray. And you just knew. It happened to George Muller. Do you know the story of George Muller? He was a kind of a, the, the famous uh, man of faith uh, who held orphanage, ran orphanages for children in Bristol here in Britain. But he was a German theological student. Although, although he was a German theological student, Mr. Muller, he wasn't saved. He was studying theology, but he wasn't saved. 
and uh, he was living a wild, profligate sort of life. And he had some wild friends who he took with him on, on, his, uh, on his evenings out. What he didn't know was that his friend was a backslider, a Christian who'd been slipping away from the Lord. And one day, the backslider recovered and began to come back to fellowship and uh, got back into the Christian life again, started going to Christian meetings. And one day, his friend, his backslidden friend, now recovered, said to George Muller, look, you know, I'm going to a meeting tonight. Will you come with me? And George Muller went to a little brethren meeting, the Christian brethren, or Plymouth brethren, they used to be. They had, the, they had their meetings in Germany as well. He went to a little brethren chapel in, uh, in Germany. And for the first time in his life, he heard people praying as if they knew God. They, they, he could just tell, hey, these, these people know God. First thing that ever happens to you when you get saved and you become a child of God is you have access to the Father. And very often, other people can feel this. They, they, they say, well, you know, this person seems to know the Lord. There seems to be something about them. It very often leads to people being saved. That's what happens in revival. In revival, you start hearing people pray, and they start praying as though, as though they know the Lord. It's because they do know the Lord, and it's because they have access. They, they, they're coming into his presence, and you can, feel, you can feel they're in the presence of God. You have access to the Father. By the blood of Jesus Christ, through him, says Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit. Prayer is to the Father, it's by means of the Lord Jesus, and it's in the power of the Spirit. Normally when you pray, you pray to God the Father. It's not an absolute rule, you can pray to Jesus, especially when you need Jesus' compassion. But normally you pray to the Father. You pray to the Father, you have access to the Father. He's your Father, and you can go right into his presence. I often think of it like this. It's like, a, imagine, imagine some very important person, maybe a businessman or a senior politician or a very important guy, and he's, he's in his office one day, and he gives instructions. He says, no, today I'm busy. He says to his secretary, don't let anybody in. Just keep everybody out. I'm busy all day. Just say I'm, I'm, I'm uh, occupied. I want to think and work today. And so nobody is allowed to see him. People come, and very important people come, but they say, no, no, the, the, the bosses are busy today. And they can't, get, they can't get access into him. But then the door is almost open, but nobody can come through. And then a little boy comes and says, hi, Daddy, can I come in? And he laughs. He knows he can come in. A little boy comes in, and the, the big guy who's been sending everybody away allows nobody to come, oh, oh no, this is my son. And the little boy can, can, can do what nobody else can do. The little child can come in where, where everybody else has been kept out all day. Why is that? Ah, oh, because this is his son. This is his child. Everybody else is kept away, but, but when, when his son turns up, oh, that's different. No, no, come in, come in, come in. Because the child has knocked at the door, he's standing at the door, wanting to see his father. I remember once preaching in Nairobi Baptist Church preaching years ago, 20, more than 30 years ago, in Arabic Baptist Church. And as I was preaching, I saw a little girl walk, walking down, walking down the, the aisle, coming, coming to sort of find me. It was my daughter who, who 100 yards away in Sunday school, had heard my voice. And somehow she, she escaped Sunday school. I don't know quite how she did that, but somehow she did. And she came pursuing the voice, looking for her daddy, and came to set the central building in Arabic Baptist Church and just made a beeline down 
wanting to see her daddy coming from afar off because she could hear his voice. But that's where we all are. We go out there seeking our daddy. And I don't like to use that term in a sentimental way. Don't use that word sentimentally. Don't, don't call God your daddy in a sentimental way. He's our father. He's also a king. But you come, you come seeking your father who loves you so much because you can hear his voice because if nobody else will let you in, he will. You have access to him. That door is always open. When it's open for nobody else, it's open for you. Having, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19, having such grounds for confidence, where you can be sure, not having confidence, but having grounds for confidence, having a reason for confidence, because he's died for us, because Jesus has shed his blood, because the Father is there, having such grounds for confidence, we come boldly, boldly, confidently to the throne of grace. We are the ones who have an entitlement, a right to come, when nobody else has a right to come, we do, having access through him to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first and the greatest of all the privileges of being the children of God. That door is always open. It doesn't matter what you feel like. Sometimes when you try to pray, you don't feel in the mood for prayer. You know, oh, you know, I'll pray tomorrow. And you don't feel in the mood. No, no. Pray anyway. You don't, you don't pray in, in, your, in the name of your mood. You don't pray in the name of how you feel. You pray in the name of Jesus. You don't pray because you're in a good mood today. You pray because the door is open. You're allowed to come. You're allowed to come no matter how you feel. It doesn't matter whether you're feeling in the mood or not. Come anyway. In fact, this is the great secret of prayer. You won't really get very far in prayer unless you learn to ignore your mood. Because Satan knows how to dampen you down when you're about to pray. You can chat to your friends very easily. Then you start trying to pray. And somehow, you're not quite so free. Quite five minutes ago, you were chatting to your friend easily enough. Why can't you talk to God? Well, because Satan does not like you praying. He will do anything to dampen you down. And if you really have to learn to pray, one of the great secrets is to ignore that initial resistance. There's always a kind of initial resistance. There's always a kind of hostility coming. It's it's satanic. It's not coming from you. It's coming from the devil. It doesn't come from you at all. Uh, But you have to ignore it and take the notice and say, well, I'm coming anyway in the name of Jesus. I'm not coming in the name of how I feel. I'm not coming because I'm in a good mood. I'm coming because the door is open and I'm invited to come to my Father. So I'm coming anyway. You go boldly, confidently into the presence of God, no matter how you feel. Looking for mercy. And looking for grace. Mercy for the past. When you look back on your past, you need mercy. Grace for the future. When you look at yesterday, you need mercy. When you look at tomorrow, you need help. Grace. So they're both there. You come boldly, have access to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. I'm quoting Hebrews 4. Grace to help in time of need because he's your father. You are his child. And the door is open. You have the right to come. In him we have access through his blood. We make use of it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and let's pray tonight as we continue these themes over these next sessions we have together. Let's stand together now and just come to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've told us even tonight that we have the right to come. We have this way in, we have this entree 
into your very presence. Pray, Lord, that as we consider these things over these couple of days, these few hours together, that you will give us something of the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of these great privileges that we have because we're your children. Help us to feel at home. Help us to know each other, even if we come from different places and different uh, times in, the, in our stories. Please, Lord, help us just to be one people who know what it is to be your children, calling upon the Father. Just help us and bless us and give us to see the immense privilege of being your child by nature and by adoption, with your life and with your status. The very, your very image coming out in our, in our character but also these high privileges because you are our Father and we're your children. Show us these things, teach us and excite us at the amazing wonder that we should be called the children of God. Be with us tonight, continue with us all evening, all night, till we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Praise God.